At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are rolling in three, two, one, cue music. Take five. And we are back with our very special edition of Facebook Live. Figuring out the technical difficulties. I have the little record button flashing in the back there. We are good to go and we are live on Facebook. And yes, this will also show up on the regular podcast channels sometime in February. Beginning of March will be the next opening. Then we have on the line with his very fresh, brand new Facebook account, and I'm his one and only friend, Richard Pikarczyk Vaca. Thank you, sir, for being on here. No, thank you, sir, for helping me uh, organize a Facebook account and inviting me back on. <laughs> it's just like Zoom, but more fun because we have uh, a live audience, which is really, really cool. And thank you to uh, Rob Lalonde to, for pointing out to me that our, our sound was all messed up. If there's any problems with the sound, please, listeners, let me know in the chat so that I can see it. And away we go. So... Richard, just to recap, now for our listening audience, Richard is a veteran. He served in the uh, engineers, and which is every infantry's favorite kind of trade because you got rid of the bombs so, to make the area a lot safer for us. So thanks for that, you nutty bugger. I just uh, always wondered with you engineers, um, do you get like custom-made pants to fit your balls in? Like, like, <laughs> like who makes your pants for you? Like that's got to be uncomfortable walking around with those. Just like everybody else, right? <laughs> Jeez, they're made out of steel. That's for sure. Unbelievable. <laughs> Taking bombs apart. You guys are nuts. Um, and then after he left the military, Richard went to school, and he's got himself a master's degree, and is a psychotherapist, and owns two different practices in psychotherapy. So. Kind of a cool perspective. He is a uh, actual combat arms veteran, and he is a therapist. So it's uh, a two-for-one deal, a really neat blend. So Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. And we are talking today about sanctuary trauma. So let's just start off with that. Um, tell me about the importance of trust in a therapeutic relationship. Well, the therapeutic relationship is a is an interesting relationship um, in a, in it and of itself, in in the sense that say um, basically you, you're coming in to say see somebody like me. You're coming in to see uh, a, a psychotherapist, a social worker, a psychologist, um, whoever it uh, it may be. Um, that person is is neutral, right? Which is which is part of what makes the the relationship more effective, right? Because we're basically coming in, um, we say at a disinterested position, not disinterested like we don't we don't care, but disinterested in the sense that um, a therapist shouldn't be promoting an agenda, right? We're supposed to be coming again at sort of a neutral perspective, 
Um, and we're expecting from, again, our clients that um, you can eventually, again, build that trust, build that, build that rapport, right? So that we can have that therapeutic interaction where um, you can feel safe enough to be vulnerable in that session, right? And in order for you to be vulnerable in that session is, again, to, to develop that trust, right, with, uh, with the psychotherapist. Not necessarily that, say, um, some psychotherapists are, are bad or some clients are, um, you know, untreatable or, or things like that. But sometimes, say, the, the blend doesn't work very well. Some therapists um, don't blend well with certain clients. Some clients don't blend well with certain uh, psychotherapists. Oftentimes, it's just maybe even a, a personality sort of um, dynamic that sort of just doesn't work. Uh, some people like me because I'm very forthcoming. Um, uh, I guess you would expect coming from combat arms. Uh, and uh, some people, again, like that. Some people, not so much. Sometimes somebody will come in for a session. They'll see you maybe uh, once, twice. Uh, you don't see them again, and maybe you'll never see them again, or maybe they'll come back six months uh, later, which is which has happened to me. It's kind of a you know bit of surprise, and then you know they'll say, oh, something came up in in life or whatever. But establishing that trust is is key in the, um, in the therapeutic uh, alliance. Well, the trust is a lot more than simply confidentiality. I mean, that's kind of a given. You expect that whatever happens in there doesn't leave. But um, let's actually talk about that. Let's let's not blow that off because I, I know a few people that they are really concerned that anything they see their therapist could go and affect their career somehow, that it would leave that room and somehow mm-hmm. there would be blowback, uh, especially for those that are still active serving, whether it be police, fire, whatever. Um, could you comment on that for me? Of course. So um, uh, at our practices, um, we, we make sure, again, all therapists, again, including myself, um, first session is, you know, you're going through the consent form, right? Uh, with the consent form, um, I'm not sort of, again, reading it verbatim with somebody, but I'm, I'm giving you kind of like the Coles notes uh, version of it, trying to pick up on a lot of the real, you know, key points and, and things like that. Uh, confidentiality is one of the, of course, the, the big ones that I that I also focus on. Uh, and what I oftentimes tell clients is, um, you know, I have kind of the Las Vegas rule in session, kind of what happens in session uh, stays in session. Um, however, I always want to make sure that there are limitations of confidentiality. I said that the three basic primary limitations are um, uh, imminent harm to, to self, um, imminent harm to somebody else, and um, uh, legal Right. So say um, imminent harm to the self is basically um, if I once I stop the session, you will not come for another session because you will kill yourself before that session. So I'm sort of ethically obligated to 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 intervene. Um, direct harm to somebody else is basically you may not attend the next session because you will you know be arrested because you're, you're going to go kill somebody else. Um, or legal components where, say, um, notes can be subpoenaed by a court or things like that. One of the things that I oftentimes highlight um, with, say, ethics and uh, law is oftentimes we conflate the two together. But um, ethical obligations kind of come down to sort of um, sort of the, the ethical guidelines, uh, that the professional sort of guidance in, in psychotherapy, whereas the law is the law. The law always supersedes um, um, your ethical uh, guidelines, right? Well, now we have to take a little side road um, because of the, the the rules that you're governed by. It uh, reminds me so much of what I've been hearing 
on a few different uh, occasions from PTSD resorts or not resorts, uh, PTSD retreats and mm-hmm. the surrounding neighbors that are concerned. And they're saying things like, Oh geez. Um, there's a PTSD retreat over there. Uh, I have a crying baby. Maybe some like what, like, or one of them going to come and shoot my baby because they can't stand the sound of the crying. So there's these, um, uh, myths out there that were these volatile, super dangerous people. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Um, I, I would say, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're looking at uh, the veteran community, when you're looking at say the first responder community, and um, oftentimes I'm, I'm going to sort of uh, focus on veterans, uh, military members and, and police officers, because oftentimes those are the communities that people think are, are the most um, volatile. Right. And I would, I would, you know, hasten to add that, say, um, you know, looking at human behavior, um, I would say 99.9% of everybody um, has the capacity to do immense harm to another human being, irrespective of, of what you do for a living or, or your, your personality qualities and things like that, right? Uh, however, when I'm looking at, say, um, treatment, or again, my own experience with the military um, experience, even now with say uh, friends is uh, when you, when you come across say veterans, this idea that say, you know, veterans are this volatile kind of community is when you, when you, when you look at first responder communities and again, looking at veterans coming out of say that first responder community um, there isn't that sort of, you know, um, ramble theme coming that, you know, they're going to, you know, decimate a, a, a village on their own or anything like that, that, um, that idea of say, um, protecting vulnerable, uh, vulnerable, uh, people is, is, is quite, quite, um, quite common among, um, a lot of veterans and, um, again, uh, police officers, military members, um, that I, that I do treatment with, right. This idea that say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just so angry. I'm going to just go, um, shoot up, you know, um, you know, people at work or things like that, um, is not something, um, that I really, uh, see, um, most, I would say most first responders, veterans, uh, in that, in that kind of group, um, are more likely to harm themselves than to harm, um, somebody else. And I mean, um, you can just look at the, um, suicide rates of active members and of, um, of those in the veteran communities, um, you are probably a lot safer with a first responder or veteran than with um, with the general population because we're basically trained uh, to intervene in in, in a crisis uh, situation. I think again, most veterans have that that kind of mentality. Well, I I totally agree. Like we run to the danger, not away from it. If, uh, if there is trouble. Uh, it's, we see it before anybody else sees it. We have this like magic, um, pre-sense, like spidey senses that other people don't have, uh, especially the higher your, your hypervigilance. We can smell trouble a mile away and we're the ones that don't ignore it. You keep seeing these videos of people walking past somebody even being abducted. They stage an abduction and people just don't do a damn thing. They just keep walking. Well, if it's one of us, we do something about it. We we, we get in there and we help. So uh, having veterans in your community at a PTSD retreat is actually makes the community, in my mind, considerably safer. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're surrounded by uh, very well-trained sheepdogs now. So that's um, uh, that's a pretty big 
it's the exact opposite of the the fears that some people have. Anyway, swinging back to sanctuary trauma, uh, getting back on the on on the road. So it's a lot more than just oh you you told my story to somebody outside uh, uh, this. It's uh, like you said the safe space that's been created and i used to laugh at these universities and colleges now having a safe space and you know i don't know what uh, they need one for there but i'm starting to have a little bit more empathy for it uh because when you reach out for help (laughs) first of all we don't reach out for help um and until it is way past the time that we should have uh we do it way later than we should have you know not preemptively so by the time we finally freaking reach out it's uh we're in a flap like we are desperate for help so if you reach out for help that first time and you go to a place where you feel judged or criticized or belittled in some way that is crushing and most people pop out of the system immediately and never, never come back. So sanctuary trauma from that perspective, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Uh, again, that, that importance of, of trust in that, in that relationship. Uh, one of the things that I highlight, uh, say when I, when I'm doing workshops, say like uh, workshops on cup for couples or say even within, um, even within the practices uh, uh, is that, that idea of a fire team. Right. And um, I, I have to say, we, we, we hire a lot of uh, veterans on staff, but for a lot of our, our civilian staff, they've, they've really drawn towards that, that, that idea of a fire team. Right. And I'll, and I'll see them in the group chats or, or even during like say meetings or things like that. They'll be like, yeah, you know, like the importance of a fire team. And, and, it, and it's great. It's great to see that, you know, they they've really kind of um, adopted that, that culture from that, that cultural component from, from the military. But um, when I talk to people about, say, a therapeutic um, relationship, um, it, it, it ties into that ability that, say, um, your fire team partner is somebody who you trust, and with that trust, you create that that vulnerability, right? Because I feel that, say, um, I can be vulnerable in this safe place, right? Because if it's unsafe, um, I, I can't be vulnerable here. I have to I have to defend myself. I have to protect myself, right? And, you know, when we, when we look at, say, um, you know, protecting myself, I need to protect myself from um, injury, not necessarily even physical injury, like, say, my therapist is going to attack me, but from, say, that kind of emotional injury, right? Mm-hmm. That, say, um, I'm going to share something um, with you, and if you um, somehow belittle me or uh, if you share that information with somebody else, um, it's, it's going to destroy that trust, which I've, which I've tried so hard to build with you. Right. And, um, basically at that point, I, I, I don't know really what, what value psychotherapy has once that trust has been, has been destroyed. Right. Um, at that point, um, it's very hard, if not impossible to sort of rebuild, um, that trust again. I mean, of course, therapists, sometimes, you know, you have to walk that fine line between say, um, you know, uh, how much of a direct or indirect um, risk is this person to, to themselves or to, to other people. Um, but uh, again, that, that trust is, is so essential to, to, to have and to maintain and to build in the therapeutic um, relationship. I, I know when, when I was even doing um, uh, schooling, 
Um, some people said like, well, you know, I, I would refuse to say, um, you know, treat certain um, clients, like say, um, people would say, well, if, if somebody came in and said, well, I, I've hit my wife before or something like that, you know, I wouldn't give them treatment. Right. And I remember the, um, the professor asked, asked, I thought a pretty good question. They said, well, what happens if say you're doing treatment with this person for like a year, right? And then finally, after a year, they build enough trust in you to share something that, you know, um, maybe they're ashamed of, right? Um, now that I say, well, you are no longer worth treating, right? Um, I basically destroyed that trust. And who knows if you'll ever be able to build that trust with another person again, right? It's funny. We have all these dating apps, you know, plenty of fish and uh, call it plenty of SIF, but um, all these dating apps would say, okay, these guys are a good match, but uh, why in the hell don't we do that with our therapists? Or is anything like that even being talked about? Uh, one of the things that, you know, again, I also include in my sort of, you know, consent ramble is uh, I tell people, I said like, look, um, I might not be the best therapist um, for you. Um, I said, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, you, you wanted to book a session with me and I, I really hope that I can provide you the service that, um, that you need. Right. Uh, but I oftentimes tell people like, you know, um, uh, I might not be the therapist for you. I, I would say to people like, you know, if you have the ability to shop around, I would shop around. Um, and one thing that I always try to leave at least like the last 10 minutes of, of every session that I have with somebody is I just want an evaluation um, from that client, right? I'll, I'll ask them, like, you know, how do you think the session went? Um, did anything stand out in the session? Was anything particularly useful for you? Uh, was there anything I could have maybe done to improve the session? Um, and sometimes, again, uh, you'll be surprised at what people will say. Sometimes I'll, I'll think to myself, like, yeah, you know what? I really feel like maybe, you know, I – I didn't do my best in this session. I kind of maybe feel like I, I, I let my client down or something like that. And they'll say, Oh, you know what? This was an amazing session. And they'll, they'll tell me, you know, we talked about this. We talked about this. It really opened up my mind to this and this and that. I'll be thinking to myself like, Oh wow. Like um, this was actually even, um, even better than I, than I thought. Or other times I'll think to myself like, wow, we really made a breakthrough. And they'll say like, yeah, you know, like it was okay. It was kind of like the same. And I'll think like, oh, okay, well, but then I appreciate that. Right. Because then at least, at least I have that evaluation um, from the client, right? And and you can start to pick up if you give people that space, whether or not they're finding um, treatment valuable, right? And when they can tell you you're you're not doing something well, you at least know you're starting to establish that trust, right? That they can feel open enough to tell you, um, look, I think you did this well, and look, I I I I didn't like this or something like that. We've been talking about trust in sort of general terms, but um, in specific things, like what are some of the categories, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot to uh, (laughs) pull this one out of your hat, but uh, maybe we can do this back and forth to come up with some ideas, but what are some different uh, specific areas of trust that um, have the potential to be broken? Um, I think some areas that may have uh, uh, trust potentially broken, I think is oftentimes maybe when we go back to those, those three big ones, right. That um, sort of imminent harm to oneself, to somebody else, or say legal implications or things like that. Right. Um, Because say, for instance, if, you know, you tell me you've got some, 
you know, odd fetish or something like that. Um, I mean, as long as it's not really harmful to you or to anybody else, um, there's not really any reason why I need to report that. There's no reason why, say, I need to call emergency services or go to the um, the hospital with you or anything like that, right? But if, say, um, uh, somebody has um, a, a manic break, maybe they're having um, uh, psychotic symptoms. And, and one thing I want to kind of try to dispel is when I say psychotic symptoms, um, you know, people will say, um, crazy for lack of a better word. Psychotic basically means a break with reality, right? Psychotic might be, uh, I'm hearing voices that say nobody else hears and it's not intuition. Um, uh, maybe I think I'm Jesus Christ. Um, like when I'm talking about that kind of, um, break, like say with say, um, uh, bipolar disorder or things like that. Um, sometimes you can really, um, uh, damage that sense of trust in, in, in the degree that say they might not be a direct threat to themselves or to somebody else, but they may become an indirect threat because say um, they feel like they um, no longer need to um, eat or they're not sleeping for several days or, you know, um, you know, they're, they're, they're perhaps engaging in some kind of behavior that might again, not be directly harmful, but indirectly harmful. And, um, monitoring say uh and hospitalization may be may be necessary um because the, the problem with say like a manic episode for instance right is that um a lot of people can see it except you right and in that regard um hospitalization might be might be necessary and while somebody is in that state they might feel betrayed right and then say if we get some medication downrange if we get maybe some more intensive treatment um, people will begin to eventually see and they'll sort of say like, wow, like I can't believe I kind of behaved that way. I can't believe this or that. Um, and part of it again comes down to that, um, that conscious awareness of, of therapists as well in terms of say, you know, um, I maybe don't want to hurt the feelings of my client by say getting emergency services involved. But if I don't, um, this person may, may end up say, severely harming themselves or, or killing themselves. Uh, the, um, uh, more what I was thinking, Richard is, and I'll, I'll just, I'll rattle off some personal experiences. <laughs> I've got, uh, uh, plenty. Um, uh, one time in, in, in my first marriage, uh, the, it was very, very clear that, uh, the, the therapist did not like me at all. And she was uh, looking at me with total mad face going, you just spoke a lot. That was a lot of words. You don't need to use those many, that many words. I'm like, whoa, you know, just uh, belittle me right, right there. Cause I used too many words. Um, uh, and other breach of trust is like, the therapist being able, should be able to spot the things that they should be able to spot. You know, long, long, long before I was diagnosed with PTSD, uh, all the couples therapy and individual therapy that I did trying to save our first marriage. Um, uh, and I'm not, don't know if it ever was salvageable, but if it was not one of them, uh, connected the dots on, Oh, you're, you you were in the army. Oh, you were overseas. Gee, let maybe let's just look to see if, if perhaps you have PTSD. Nobody out of the God knows how many sessions we had, 
not one of them um, pointed that out. So to me, that's kind of a breach of trust as well. Like I'm trusting you to spot these things. I didn't know, <laughs> you know, how did you not spot that? So that's a breach of trust. Because uh, I'm, I'm as, as expecting them to know something like that. And um, so there's the competency, competency piece, uh, the, uh, the being judged piece. Um, and also uh, creating glass ceilings. Uh, you and I have, have spoken privately about that. and um, uh, Or uh, keeping a poker face, you know, not looking in shock and horror when you say something. Like I've had a couple of these and there we... You know, like, whoa, whoa, you know, that's not very good. So those are the types of breaches of trust I'm talking about. And um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on those. Um, I would agree, uh, you know, looking at some of those subtle kind of behaviors. And, um, you know, I I, I always appreciate, um, Mark, I think one of the the beautiful things about um, um, the podcast is um, you 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 touch a lot of lives by also um, uh, being vulnerable uh, on online, vulnerable on air, where you, you you know you talk about some of the difficulties um, you've gone through. So um, you know I'll, I'll I'll do the same in the sense that say you know you and I you know we, we were talking a little bit uh, before uh, privately about say some of those glass ceilings, right? Um, I. Um, you know, before, you know, I, I, I got registered as a psychotherapist and everything like that. Um, I went in for, uh, for psychotherapy, um, with, uh, with a psychologist, um, Lisa Keith, she's fantastic. She does first responders, uh, including again, military and veterans. And, um, uh, when I had gone into, um, uh, to see her, I was again, going in there for, for anger management. And, uh, this was shortly after, um, I, uh, I came out of a, came out of a coma. I had a, I had a traumatic brain injury and, um, I had, um, neurologist, occupational therapist. I had all sorts of, um, specialists on this, this treatment team. And, um, you know, uh, one of the things was, you know, don't, don't set the bar too high. You know, that, that idea that say, well, you know what, you came from combat arms. All you really know, the only skills you really have is how to shoot people. Cause all you have is a high school education, and put on top of that, you had a traumatic brain injury. Um, so um, you've probably got the intelligence of, of a child, right? So, you know, don't set the bar too high because you will inevitably fail. And um, uh, it's going to really, it's going to really suck. It's really going to hurt you. And it's going to damage your mental health, you know, if you try, right? And I was saying to myself, like, well, you saying that actually damages my mental health. Um, but when I, when I'm, saying that, you know, I, I've, I've, I've gone to, to psychotherapy before and, um, Lisa, uh, she was really one of the only, um, only, uh, treatment providers. And, and I also want to tie in family as well. Um, that, you know, would, would kind of take along the same kind of, you know, line of thought where, you know, um, don't set the bar too high. Right. Um, because, you know, it's really, it's, it's really going to suck for you when, when it doesn't pan out. And I remember um, when I told her, I said, you know, I want to, I want to go to school. Um, you know, at the time I was still serving and um, she said like, you know what? Um, I think you would be um, fantastic therapist. She said, I'm really happy that that's what, that's something that you would want to, you would want to do. I, um, she says, I, I think you could establish a great relationship with other uh, military members or veterans and the first responder community. She says, I see a lot of, um, you know, veterans and, and people like that. And, um, 
I remember whenever, you know, we would talk, she would tell me, you know, um, one day when you finish your undergraduate, one day when you get registered, one day when you're um, a psychologist, one day when you're, and she would always talk to me as, as not as you may or may not um, succeed. She just said like, look, you want to, this is what you want to do. Uh, you've got the motivation, you've got the commitment to do it. Do it, go do it. Prove, prove, prove everybody wrong, prove everybody right. Who says that say you can or, or can't do it. And, the beautiful thing about that is that put the control back into, into my hands, right? It was, I had the control to, to do this. Right. So when you're talking about, you know, uh, trust, I think, you know, that idea that say, well, don't set the bar too high. Again, you're not taking a neutral stance, say as a, as a therapist, right? I, I have, I have clients um, who have a horrific um, histories, especially um, a lot coming from from our indigenous communities, and you know they'll they'll tell me, um, look, I want to I want to go to McMaster University, I want to get like a medical degree, um, but you know I still have to finish my my grade ten education. I you know I have a, I, I was a high school dropout, and you know I say okay, like let's let's make a plan, let's 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 figure out how you're gonna do that. What what needs to get done, right? Because if you kind of shoot down that idea, right. Um, that little bit of motivation, a little bit of um, purpose that that person has been developing, you've, you've basically um, shot it down. You know, to take your words, Mark, uh, you know, you've shat all over it, right? So then, you know, at that point, you know, that, that little bit of purpose that that person has, now it's, now it might be gone, right? I think the barrier is the personal egos of the therapists, you know, like if you have goals and aspirations that are higher than their own personal goals and aspirations, um, an unfortunate normal human tendency is to pull that other person down. For the people that are a little bit smaller and they, like a well-developed person on Maslow's hierarchy of needs that's at the top, that's at uh, um, the top of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is self-actuation. Those people only want to pull up others and they want to see them succeed. And if they rocket right past where you perceive yourself to be, you're just cheering them on, like right on. But that's not everybody. Matter of fact, it's very few people that have the ability to cheer somebody on even when they're being outdone by that person. Most people are wounded by that. And, um, uh, And that's, I think, I don't know if they teach that at therapy school to watch out for that but i have seen it time and time again um, where they want to minimize your dreams or maybe even your accomplishments uh, so that they don't have to feel less than mm-hmm. well and i think when you when you were talking about ego i think i think that's something again we see um, we see across different relationships, whether it be therapeutic relationships, romantic relationships, friendship relationships, business relationships. Um, when when ego gets involved, and, and of course, um, we all need a little bit of ego in the sense that um, when it when it manifests as confidence, right? We all need a, we all need that confidence, right? Um, however, when um, that ego turns into somebody who say can't take ownership or can't take accountability or is fearful of, say, being, like, outdone, for instance, by somebody else, um, of course, it can be very damaging, right? Like, say, for instance, at, at our practice, um, 
I, we, 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 we want to train our staff. We, we push our staff for, for education. I, I basically um, want my staff uh, to outperform my tasks, outperform the things that I do so that I can go do other things as well. Right. So that I say I can expand the practice or, or things like that, because, you know, this other person, if I'm, if I'm um, doing uh, staff management or um, uh, clinical management and somebody does a better job than me, give them that job and I can go do something, I can go do something else, right? Because if that person is, you know, again, doing a better job than me, why, why am I going to be threatened by that? If anything, that's an advantage, really, because, you know, at the end, if we're aligned, if say um, we want, you know, what's best for, for the practice practice if our strategy is again to serve our clients and somebody does something better than me why why wouldn't i try to say again put them into that position where they can um, excel at some some talents that they have that probably are maybe better than mine well that's uh, the nice thought but the reality of it is is that most people don't have that inner strength to lift somebody higher than themselves and uh it's it's unfortunate and it's sad but it's it's just the case, and and I think all the more reason of picking. Um, <laughs> I talk about the rule of five a lot, and oh my God, is that ever important uh, with your therapist as well? So you are the sum total of the five people you spend the most time with. But it's not just t- um, the amount of time; it's the quality of time. And you're so freaking you're more vulnerable with your therapist if you're doing it right than you are with your spouse a lot of times you know and you're willing or able to share things that you don't share with freaking anybody so if that um, uh, same person is discouraging you or uh, not lifting you up or being a detriment in your life in some way well that's not good (laughs) and that's exactly what um, uh, I've experienced and that I shared with you so I'm like I'm taking a different path now that I'm sort of free of that uh, uh, glass ceiling, but we are a product of our environment. So, I mean, you should only be surrounding yourself with cheerleaders regardless. So if your therapist, the person you're the most vulnerable with, um, isn't a cheerleader for you, isn't encouraging you towards uh, goals that, that are achievable never mind realistic realistic is is boring you know just just make them possible if it's possible you know um i mean freaking go for it and and make sure that 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 those closest to you that have the most influence on you are influencing you to be more not to be less not to settle not to be mediocre you don't have to be mediocre you know that's that's a choice and being exceptional is a choice. It's a choice of behaviors. I mean, you got to freaking work for it. An exceptional result requires exceptional work. So you got to work harder. But um, uh, be very, very careful who who who's in your circle, including your therapist. I think. I I would agree absolutely with you, and I think one one thing that you you touched on that um, stirred a thought in me as well is that idea that say. You know, when when you have those those cheerleaders, right? Uh, people oftentimes um, conflate um, confrontation with hostility, right? Um, I find uh, for myself, um, I can you know confront clients in session. I can confront um, you know people in my own life where I can say point something out, right? If say 
you know, um, if I feel like say we're going in circles, right. If, if say, um, I'm speaking with a client and, um, they're not maybe taking ownership of some of say their own responsibilities in life or things like that. I can, I can maybe bring that up versus hostility. If I'm sort of just tearing them down, there's a, there's that difference, right? Um, because, you know, if, um, you know, if somebody's um, constantly say, saying, well, um, you know, these people do this, these people do that. Um, oh, and this is everything that's wrong with the world. Um, if I'll, you know, confront them in terms of say, asking them, well, um, what role do you play? What, what, what responsibilities do you have? What ownership can you take over all of these things, which you, you seem to feel that you have no control over, right? That confrontation versus, as again, you were saying, setting that glass ceiling, whereas, well, you'll never achieve this, right? Um, that hostility um, can be extremely detrimental to the therapeutic relationship. I think it could be, again, ther- extremely detrimental to any relationship. As you were saying, I remember from your, your podcast on, on that group, you know, group with five, right? Um, you don't want those people in your in your um, in your group because um, again, it's it's not only bad; it's 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 directly or indirectly harmful. Um, sort of finding that purpose, I think, in life. There is a difference and between aggression and assertion. So uh, people believe that is um, they mistakenly screw up uh, being assertive with being aggressive. And they're not the same thing. Aggression is um, uh, is a physical act. You know, it, it's an elevation of emotions. Assertion is a communication skill. So proper communication means that you are not emotionally engaged. Uh, if you are emotionally engaged, you're not communicating uh, unless you're on the pulpit and, and you're delivering a, a fantastic speech. Um being emotionally engaged means that you're reacting instead of responding and good communication means that it's a proper response. And, um, being assertive is just the ability to set a boundary and to say no without being a dick about it, you know? And, and that's, that's what it is. That's the communication skill, the ability to say no and being a self advocate without, um, punching anybody in the nose while you do it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think definitely that uh, that last point, yeah, without uh, <laughs> that, that that physical aggression or, or again that that verbal aggression is is key uh, because again that uh, that assertiveness that that communication style um, is is very difficult. I think oftentimes communication in general is difficult for people. I, I oftentimes tell people, uh, especially when I have um, uh, couples in in session. Let's say there's that um, that adage that say people become blind with with anger, right? And I said, well, people actually don't become blind with anger; they become deaf, and people just sort of talk at each other, right? Because there's a communication breakdown, right? Um, where it's sort of, I, and I and I have told people, I said, I'm sure you do this. I said because God only knows I've done this. Is I'll get into a heated argument with somebody, and I'll stop listening to you, and after I'm finished speaking. I think about the next thing that I'm going to say, you know, um, and I, and I say, we've all done that, you know, before. And what's key is trying to pick up when am I doing that? Right. Because when I'm doing that, 
I'm not effectively communicating with this other person. Well, the dynamics of what's actually happening there is so interesting too. Like the actual thing that's happening is um, the number one human emotional need is being fought for on each side, which is affirmation. And when you don't feel affirmed, the wrong way to do it is, to, well, if you're not hearing me, of course, I'm going to raise my voice. And uh, so the, the, the greater the miscommunication, the more your voice goes up, and then it starts the death spiral. The louder I am, the less you hear. The louder I am, the more aggressive I am, the less effective my communication. So then it just spirals, and then both sides are doing it, and then you have a whole lot, an, an all-out screaming match. But really what it is, is two people going, I don't feel heard. I don't feel heard. And the physical manifestation of I don't feel heard is, is the raised voices. So the, but to be mindful of that in the moment is awfully difficult. <laughs> but if you uh, can at least uh, to build that bridge back again, to, to mend that fence, once the dust is settled to go back and go, okay, clearly you haven't felt heard and I don't feel heard. Let's, let me try to understand exactly what it is that that you were trying to say because clearly I wasn't hearing you and by going first which small people can't do you have to be a big person and it's just a choice you know it's not it's not your genetics you can choose to be the big person by going first um, by and you don't go first by speaking first you go first by listening first and uh, give them the space to safely say uh, what they're saying without you being pissy and defensive about it. Be uh, big enough to hear them and understand them and then go, oh, that's what you're saying. All right, well, I I am so sorry I didn't hear you the first time. I totally didn't get it. Um, now, can I share with you my side? You know, and... Uh, if you've got, you know, ladies first kind of thing, you know, if you, you hold the door for somebody and then after uh, they've gone, they're probably going to be in a lot better place to go, okay, now I'm ready to have some empathy for your feelings too. And then poof, you've both been heard and you're not fighting anymore and you understand each other better. You know, otherwise you just have, keeps having the same stupid fight again and again and again, because the negative feedback loop never, ever ends until you end it with a choice of listening not trying to talk louder so instead of talking harder listen harder <laughs> oh god i just uh, quoted justin trudeau that will never happen again <laughs> listen hard <laughs> you know one one thing i think that you, you you hit on that was really key which you said um both of us are going to be, say, um, failing to, to actually listen to the other person, but both of us have the same desire. We want to be heard, right? And I wish I could tell you how many times this has happened in, in sessions with, with couples that I've, that I've done uh, treatment for, right? That at the end, sort of a light bulb goes off in both of their heads, right? And they're like, oh, you know what? We're arguing but we both actually kind of want the same thing, right? Our strategy is say um, to save the relationship and maybe spend more time together. Right. But we just can't find a way to say that to one another. That makes sense. Right. And then it's, and it's funny. Cause then, like I said, you, you'll see that light bulb will go off and sometimes both of their heads, right. And they'll, they'll be like, Oh, so you don't hate me. You just want to spend more time with me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Oh, 
oh, okay, so this is why you did that. You know, this this is, and then you start you start to see, and that's when again the communication starts coming into play. That's when again there's that um, there's that that mutual listening, right? And we can't really communicate with somebody until we listen, right? I I remember my um, my my parents growing up always told me, um, you got um, uh, two ears, two eyes, but one. Uh, one mouth so you should look and listen more than you speak right and, and i think that's that's pretty effective with with most of our interactions with other people it's about breaking that negative feedback loop because while the negative feedback loop is in play there's no communication happening no none whatsoever there's there's a facade of communication because words are being spoken um but again nobody's receiving those words richard we are at 44 minutes my friend Time always flies. Time always flies. We could do this for three more hours. But uh, thank you so much for being on Operation Tango Romeo again. And uh, we'll probably follow this up with a phone call as soon as we're done. Now, uh, just just as we close out, uh, you can do sessions if somebody wants to say, hey, I'm going to try that Richard uh, Papa D guy, the P10, Richard Pykartrick Vaca as my therapist. How can they get a hold of you? Uh, they can always call our, um, our practice. Um, we, we do all of our sessions online now because of, um, you know, the COVID restrictions and things like that. Um, uh, the only thing that will, um, will happen is, is normally because again, with, with regulatory bodies, uh, let's say again, like the, the CRPO, the college of registered psychotherapists of Ontario is, um, we can only do treatment for people with an Ontario residence. That doesn't mean say somebody who lives in say Alberta, who also has residency in, in Ontario can't say um, uh, attend uh, sessions. Um, however, normally that's how, how sessions are, are booked. Sometimes again, we will have uh, sessions with people who are in, um, in other countries. Uh, but again, there's that, there's that residency, which, which can, uh, can uh, allow us to provide. Okay, so uh, we need, we need to know how they can find you though, Richard, what's your phone number? Let's start with that. The phone number is, you know what? I'm I'm so bad. I'm, I'm <laughs> I don't have it off the top of my head, so I'm embarrassed. I'm I'm going onto my phone um, uh, right now. Um, anybody can give us a call at nine zero five three eight eight five one six six. Again, it's 905-388. 5166. And that's a direct line. Um, and from there, uh, people can book sessions. People can actually go online. Uh, they just look up the, uh, the, the, um, the, the practice and you can, and what is the, na- what is the name of the practice for them to look up? The name of the practice is uh, Romero Chikarchik Vaca uh, psychotherapy. Yeah, I'll have to put that in the show notes. <laughs> That's why we call you Papa Deese, P10. All right. I'll, I'll try to figure out a way to put that in the show notes, but they have your phone number, which is excellent. And uh, thank you so much for being on Operation Tango with Romeo for a second round and the first round on a Facebook Live. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much, Mark. And it's always a pleasure. Closing out, cue music. <laughs> You are listening to a Facebook Live version of Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. 
Find all the episodes on Operation Tango Romeo, your favorite podcast platform, or visit OperationTraumaRecovery.org. That's OperationTraumaRecovery.org. Peace out. Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast.